0: Yeah, Ben, thanks for leading us in worship this morning. And welcome church to week 3 of our series Luminescence or Illuminate the power of God to light, bring a light into our lives. The first two weeks of the series was luminescence and it was leading into Christmas. And it was the light that dawned. We talked about the light of the world that is Jesus. We talked about the incarnation. And read from, you know, Matthew, read the story of of the birth of Christ. And these next two weeks, we're talking about the light that is God's word. The light to our feet. The light to our path. I want you to look right over your head where you're at. You can, yep, yep. Everyone's heads turn up like all the kids in Charlie Brown's Christmas when they're singing. Yeah, look, what's over your head? Yeah, set design team, uh, Nate, Kate, you guys did such an awesome job with this set. Didn't they do an awesome job? Um, I love the, the lights up here. And, and what kind of bulbs over your, over your head? Does anyone know what kind of bulbs these are? Bright. They're bright. That's right, yes. They're bright. They're bright bulbs. They're Edison bulbs. Yep. So they're Edison bulbs, named after their founder. Thomas Edison, in the 1800s, in the 19th century, Edison was the most prolific inventor. In fact, not just then, but to date, he, is, he holds the record in the United States still for most patents held by a single person. You don't want to take a stab? Over 1,000 1, patents, 1,093 patents that are still to Thomas Edison's name. He uh, invented the the movie camera, the movie uh, camera. He invented the the um, the phonograph and the microphone. Uh, over a thousand different things. Yet this one in particular, the one that's right over your head, that we use every day, often all the time. Not sure how many times, countless times. The light bulb was considered by him himself his crown achievement. He said in a Time Magazine interview, this, as there's no oxygen to burn, you can readily see that this piece of carbon will last an ordinary lifetime. It has the property of resisting the heat of the current of electricity, while at the same time it becomes incandescent and gives out one of the most brilliant lights which the world has ever seen. The cost of preparing one of these little horseshoes of carbon is about one cent. Ah one cent, and the entire lamp will cost not more than 25 cents. Illumination, light. It's been an obsession not just, it's been an obsession not just since Edison, not just of Thomas Edison. It's been an obsession of ours as human beings for centuries, even millennia. You see, the ancients, uh, pagan religions worshipped gods of light of the sun because they understood how essential light was to their livelihood to their life itself so the egyptians worshiped the god re or ra and the greeks had their god and the romans had their god all of all of the sun or of light Light has been and continues to be a really big deal. And so in the psalmist in Psalm 119, in the largest chapter in the book of the Bible, in all of scripture, the largest chapter, when he likens the word of God to light, he's making a profound and very important statement for us today. And so we're gonna read, we're gonna begin in verse 105 and read to verse 112 in the book of Psalms, chapter 119. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there or you can follow along on the screen. And I want us to do something different that we don't normally do, but I want us to stand as we read uh, God's word together. Can you do that with me, please? Stand as we read God's word. Psalm 119, verse 105 to 112, beginning in 105. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it, that I will follow your righteous laws. I have suffered much. Preserve my life, Lord, according to your word. Accept, Lord, the willing praise of my mouth, and teach me your laws. Though I constantly take my life in my hands, I will not forget your law. The wicked have set a snare for me. But I have not strayed from your precepts. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. Praise God. Thanks for standing with me. You can have a seat. Psalm 119, I've already mentioned it's the largest chapter in all of Scripture, 176 verses. 176 verses, and it's a, it's a poem. Anyone like poetry, like artistry, like songs? David, like the likely author, has written a poem in Psalm 119, and he's written it to the acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet. So he starts with their first letter of their alphabet, Aleph. So if we were writing A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, I, M, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, W... I don't even... <laughs> thanks, Ben. If we were writing, we'd start with A and we would write a whole stanza where the first word of each line, I'm totally distracted and messed up now, <laughs> and the first letter of each line, the first word, it would begin with the letter A. And then the second stanza, every line would begin with a word that begins with the letter B and then C, and so forth. And he did this all throughout these 176 verses. We can't tell in any English translation because it doesn't translate well from Hebrew to English, but this is what it looks like on paper for Hebrew. And they read from right to left, and so you can see in verse one, it's Aleph. That's the letter, that's that weird looking X mark that's on the far right side. And so every line begins with the word that begins with Aleph, and then so on. And we find ourselves in verse 105 with the, the letter none. And so every single line in this particular passage that we're reading begins with that same letter. David creatively loved God's word. Not only did he set it up in a creative and artistic fashion, he was, he was careful to emphasize just how much he loved God's word by how much he talked about it. If you read the entirety of Psalm 119, it takes about 15 minutes on audiobook. It's a long chapter. But when, if you read it and if you go through and highlight how many times he mentions decrees or statutes or commandments or law or your word, you'll find it's 191 times. I counted <laughs> this week. And you'll find words like Torah or law or edah statutes or testimonies or derech the way 13 times pikudim your precepts your holk your statutes your mitzvah that's a word that we that we recognize a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah was simply a ceremony where the child became a son or a daughter, bar is son, bat is is daughter, son or daughter of the commandment. That's how important the law was. It's how much they valued the law, that they set up this ceremony that they would become a son or daughter of the mitzvah, the commandment. Mishpat, davar, imrah, aduth, a total of 191 times. Do you think that this is a little bit redundant? I mean, some of the verses, if you do the math, some of the verses have God's word or law or testimony or commandments or statutes in it twice, not just once, but twice. How much they elevated this. We're talking about God's law today. And I know that in a room this size, when we start talking about law or precepts, or judgments of God, or commandments of God, some of us, if not all of us, start to squirm. But for the Israelites, it wasn't something that made them squirm, it was something that they loved. We're going to talk a little bit about why they loved the law so much, why they loved the words of God so much. And we begin with this verse in 105. They loved it because it was a lamp that lights their path. The lamp that lights. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. Recently, I was driving at night in my minivan with my kids. Any other dads drive awesome minivans like I do? Shout out, fellas. Yep. Yes, sir. I need a truck, guys. (laughs) All right, so I'm driving in the minivan uh, with my kids, and my daughter's in the back seat, and she's four. And like a lot of four-year-olds, parents will know what I'm talking about, she asks questions or makes statements that are just hilarious, like, where did you come up with that? Why are you asking that question? And she asked me this question in particular while we're driving at night. She said, dad, what if right now all the lights in all the world stopped working? And I, so I'm processing really fast and real, real quickly, I went to a morbid place. <laughs> I said, well, we'd be dead. I mean, I'm driving 50 miles an hour on this road and we would die. I mean, I can't see anyone else. That car in front of me all of a sudden would be invisible and I would run into someone and we'd all be in heaven very shortly. But I didn't say that with my daughter. I was just thinking through and I was like, "Well, Addie, we w- we wouldn't be able to see." I mean, and I'd probably have to stop the I'd have to stop the car because I wouldn't be able to see in front of me and and then I got to thinking I was looking around as I was driving at all of the lights that I overlook all the time. So I see in my van the dashboard that's lit up with very important information on it, very valuable information about how fast I'm going or how fast I'm not going, whatever. I was in a minivan, okay? Gosh. Jeez. Come on. I also looked out ahead of me, and I couldn't see the lights, but I could see the effects of the headlights. So I could see in front of, I could see the the path, the road was illuminated because of my headlights. I could see other cars coming to me because of lights. I could see other cars going away. I could see their taillights because of their lights. I could see things on the street because of streetlights. I could see that houses because of lights that were in the window or on, this, on their porch or whatever else. I could see lights all over the place. My how, how we take for granted what Thomas Edison and company did in the 1800s in creating light bulbs. But for the people of Israel, when David says that your word is like a, a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, they wouldn't have thought of a light bulb unless they were just prof- prophetic. Uh, they would have thought of something like this, so oh yeah, I mean, so when you're out at night, you would take a lamp with you and you'd hold on to it and it would be it, there would be a flame there, and you can see your, your path. You can see that there's that there's cow manure right there, and you don't want to step in that junk. You can see that there's A hole in the ground over here that you could break your leg it's that significant so you got to avoid that you got to avoid that part of the path you can see that oh hey off in the distance or a little bit of ways i can see a little bit of a shadow of a of a creature of a predator i can see danger better When David says your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path, he's he's making a word image in their their minds about this, this light that guides, that directs, that helps see. But do you notice he doesn't say the lamp is the thing that lights, the lamp is the thing that guides. The object here in this verse, in verse 105, is not the lamp, it's not even the light, it's the word. Now, we use the word or the Bible or scripture synonymously. I do it all the time to talk about this. You do it too? God's word, God's word, God's word. And I almost don't even think about what I'm saying. For the people of Israel, when David uses this word, davar, for word, he's talking about the, the literal voice, the utterances of God, the actual literal voice. It actually harkens back to Exodus chapter 20, where where Moses has ascended to Mount Sinai and he's on top of this mountain and no one else came came with him, it was just him. And God's presence descended on this mountain and there's this cloud over it and the the earth was shaking and it was so glorious that when he came down off that mountain, he didn't even look at God's face either. It was so glorious, he was emanating light. He was glowing from this experience with God. And you know how the chapter starts where God gives the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel. This is the first time he utters laws that they write down in their history. And it says this, so God said these things to Moses saying, you will have no other gods before me. You're to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You're to honor your parents don't murder, stealing—it's off the table. Don't covet, but it started with this same word, davar—the same word that that David uses in Psalm one nineteen. I think when David is even using, I wonder if he, while he's penning this chapter, if he's thinking back to how God spoke these laws, how up to this point in Israel's history, they didn't even have these things written down. They're wandering aimlessly. They're about to wander aimlessly through a desert for 40 years. They're a nomadic people. They were just living in a country that wasn't their own in Egypt and they've been kicked out and they're desperate to hear something from God. You ever been desperate to hear from someone? Get a phone call from a loved one? People have family, that are in the military, know what I'm talking about. Oh, I just, I just would, I would love to just hear their voice. This is what David's talking about. Oh God, your voice, your voice is the thing that directs. Just like your voice was the thing that, that gave us the commandments. It gave us this way to live that's good, that's better, that guides us. Your word, the beautiful part about this though is that even though the laws, it is really hard to follow. In fact, no one could possibly do this and follow it on their own, of their own volition. That's why they had this sacrificial system so that when they broke the law, they had a way of making things right with God because they broke his law. Jesus comes and we just celebrated the coming of Christ these last few weeks, Right? And you read what stories for Christmas? You read about the virgin birth. You read about Gabriel, maybe. You read about some shepherds. You read about some angels singing glory to God in the highest. You read about some magi that come, a baby in a manger. You know what we don't usually read at Christmas time is John's version of the incarnation. And this is how John's version goes In the beginning was. The word. And the word was God and the word was with God. And then he goes on, he said, the word became flesh. Jesus has become this davar, this word, this light, this thing that, it, that replaces, that actually fulfills. He is the fulfillment of the commandments. He's the fulfillment of the law, it says in the New Testament. He is our perfect example what it means to live rightly before God. And he is the perfect example and the perfect giver of grace when we can't do it. That's beautiful. That's a way through Jesus that you can actually uphold truth and law that you break yourself, but that you strive to live differently because of grace. It seems like those are opposite and antithetical to each other but they're tied together beautifully, woven together beautifully as it says in the New Testament that Jesus himself was full of what? Grace and truth, law and love. He goes on though and he in verses 106 and 109, what I love about this text also is that it's a poem. And so in poetic fashion, uh, David or the author, they, they have an introduction and an outro in verses 105 and 112. But six, 106 and 109, 107 and 110, and 108 and 111 have similar themes. And so we're gonna talk about those themes. 106 and 109 talk about this theme of the law. And David calls it a good law. Again, a good law, but legalism and but the Pharisees and stuff. And the good law is he is he serious? He's talking about a good law. He said, "I've taken an oath and confirmed it that I will follow your righteous laws." Everyone say righteous. I'm going to say righteous. 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 Your righteous laws, this is a different righteous, okay? To follow your righteous laws, we're going to come back to that word. Though I constantly take my life in my own hands, I will not forget your law, your right law. When I hear the word righteous, I immediately think of something that is sacred or something that is holy, something that's been set apart. However, this word means something a little bit different. While it means a little bit of the sacred and a little bit of the set apart, it also has a meaning of, of something being true or accurate. Anyone like building things with their hands, crafting, carpentry, building? Yes? I'm not super great at building things, I'm just, I've, I don't have an affinity for it. I don't have a lot of tools to do it. Um, but when you're building, there are some terms that, that builders, construction workers, people that are crafting and, and doing carpentry work would be very familiar with. And if you're not familiar with it, you're going to build something that doesn't look like what you want it to look like. The first term is the, is the question, is something square? For something to be square, for it to have a 90 degree angle, not an 87 degree angle, not a 91 or 92 degree angle, you're going to get a crooked looking room. Is it square? Is it level? Can I put a marble in the middle of the floor and will it stay there or is it going to go scooting down that direction? Not the Tower of Pisa. That's not level. Is it plumb? Is it straight up and down? Is it straight up and down? Is it square, is it level, is it plumb? I read an article this last week about these terms and about building, and and this article said, if you have a tool um, to measure whether something is square, whether something is level, or whether something is plumb, and you're not sure if it's working accurately, you're not sure if it's correct, do one of two things, all right? You ready for this? They're they're kind of funny because they're so simple. Number one, take that tool and set it up, pit it up against some another tool of the same kind but a tool that you know is true that is correct compare it to something that you know is true that'll preach for our lives compare it to something that you know is true second and and if it's not true the second part is this get rid of it seems very basic number one compare it to something that's true if it doesn't work and it's not working right get rid of it and get something that is working right this is what David's talking about when he says the right law. It's the true law. Now, I know we have an aversion to this in our culture when we talk about law, because when we're talking about law, especially religious or spiritual law, we take with us our cultural bent of post-modernity. We live in a post-modern culture, a really a post-Christian culture that is opposite or in opposition to Christian values. Do you know what I'm talking about, church? We see it in the news. Maybe some of you experience it at work or you experience it at school. You're just not tolerant. You do you, I do me. And so we start to follow other laws. Let me talk, let me just take a stab in the dark at some of the laws you might be following or maybe that you've been following in 2017 or 2016 or whatever, how about this law, the cultural law? What's happening around me? What are people doing? What, what does my culture say is okay and normal? Because it's just really easy to like, yep, get off on that lane. That, that's, yep, I'm just going to take that road. What's culturally happening? How about this one? What, what do I feel is right? How about the law of your feelings? Well, I, I just feel like since we love each other that God wouldn't be opposed to us having sex right now even though we're not married. I just feel like, you know, uh, the government takes a lot from us and I know it's a little bit of a stretch on my taxes, but, it, you know, I, but I feel like this is okay. You know, I, f- I feel like doing this with my, with my family, I, I feel like this is, watching that movie, I, I feel like, th- I feel like God, this is Okay. So much of what we do, even as Christ followers, becomes rooted in what we feel versus what we know to be true. I don't know if I'm stepping on your toes. I'm stepping on my own toes. Can I step on my own toes like this? Yeah. What kind of law are you living your life by? Is it cultural? Is it what you feel? Maybe it's, maybe it's what seems reasonable. Some of you use that. You're more logical, so it's less feeling. But you know what? It seems reasonable that, uh, that we would make this decision here. It seems reasonable. God surely could not have meant that. That was a different time period. I'm so much more enlightened than what they were. We have all kinds of arrogant ways of getting around what God wants for our lives, and so it seems reasonable. It feels good, culture is telling me. But what is right? David says, God's law, this is, is right, it's true. If you're, um, if you're a bit of a wayfinder or a hiker or an outdoorsman, this would be your compass that points to true north. Some of you don't need that. And if you're hiking at night, you look for Polaris or the North Star. And once you find it in the sky, you're like, that, that's, that's north. Someone else could tell you, no, you know what? Uh, that star over there is north. No, it isn't. That's north. Yeah, but I feel like, you know, I, I, I think that one's north. No, that's north. What's true? This is what David's talking about when he says righteous law. It's the right law. We don't like it all the time you're going to like parts of the law and you're, gonna, and you're going to squirm and maybe even hate other parts of the law that are very uncomfortable, that are very hard to live by, that are very hard to hold your life accountable to. It's hard to live the law. It's hard to live God's word and hold grace at the same time. You know how I know it? Because it, this is the way for my life. Is it easier for me to yell at my kids or to treat them poorly? Yes. Is it harder for me to discipline them under God's word and to hold up a different standard? Yes. Is it easier in marriages to be unfaithful than to be faithful? Is it easier to cheat than it is to be honest? over and over again through God's word he's not saying that it's easier he's saying that it's better it's true it's right <clears throat> the good law that guides this this summer last summer summer 2017 in July i had the privilege of being summoned by the court for jury duty anyone had jury duty in here jury duty who's not had jury duty I hate you all, <laughs> and the rest of us do. No, just kidding. So jury duty, I had jury duty, and I, I showed up so that I wouldn't be in contempt of court and be arrested. Uh, so I show up to the circuit court in Kent County, to this building, and I join uh, probably three, two, three hundred other people that had been summoned that same week. <clears throat> and there were five cases that were open and they were hoping that several of them would become settled before going to trial, that they would be resolved before going to trial. And three of them, that happened. Two of them went to trial that week, and so they needed 26 jurors, 13 for each, and and I was chosen as one of the jury members. I was scrutinized, they asked me about my background, who I know, what I do, all of my belief system, all of this stuff. And in the end, I was selected to be on this jury for a murder trial. It was one of the harder things in the summer that I went through emotionally, mentally, spiritually. Holding the law while like feeling sympathy and grace as a follower of Jesus, even for the defendant, even for the perpetrator. They killed someone. And this tension that I felt between law and grace. This appreciation that I developed for our law. Are you happy for our law? Are you glad we live in a country that has a judicial system? What an appreciation I had for our our judicial system, our judges, our attorneys, our law enforcement. I think of you, Tim, I think of others in our church that have served in law enforcement to uphold a standard. I don't always like it. I don't like that I'm going to pull out here later and I've got to drive 25 right there. <laughs> Seriously? 25 miles an hour? Should be 35 at least. Maybe 45 even. But 25, who can do that? I don't like that. But I really like that we've decided as a country that murder isn't going to be tolerated. That rape is not right. That abuse that stealing, and that there's discipline, there's punishment for those things we're holding your feet to the fire as a culture, as a community, an appreciation for law. This is what David's talking about. Man, without law, God, we'd, we'd be lost still in this wilderness wondering, what do you want us to do? Or another way of asking the question that, we all, that a lot of us have asked, God, what's your will for my life? What do you want me to do, God? Have you, have you read this? Have you, been, have you been reading it? So the law was so important for the people of Israel. Helped them decide what was right, what was true, what was, what was square, what was true north. But here's the kicker, it didn't mean that the laws were easy. Notice what David does in the next verses. Right after talking about the goodness, the rightness of the law, in verses 107 and 110, he talks about suffering. I don't know what 27 looked like for some of you. Some of you lost family members, really even in this month. Some of you have dealt with just job loss and suffering that has been deep and and very, very difficult. I want you to know, I I hope that this brings hope into your heart and into your life today. That David, while he's talking about the law and the goodness of God, and he even talks about joy and praise, he talks, he's he's not pulling the wool over his eyes. He's not making like everything's gonna be just rainbows and, and unicorns for the rest of his life. It's not that. In fact, this is what he says, I've suffered much. Preserve my life, Lord, according to your word. The wicked have set a snare for me but I've not strayed from your precepts. I've suffered, I've been snared. I've suffered, I've been snared. I've suffered, I've been snared, but keep me, preserve me. Hold me to your word. There's a false belief, especially in Western or American Christianity, that equates blessing with ease or safety. And it's just not true. That equates the blessed life your best life, whatever you wanna call it, with financial blessing, ease in your marriage and with your family and with your job and God's gonna set you up with this silver platter because you're now blessed. Jesus doesn't say that. In fact, in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he begins with this, these statements of blessing and most of them aren't things that we're like, yeah, that's my goal in life, to be poor in spirit. To be persecuted for my faith. But he says, Blessed are you when you're that. Blessed are you when you're these things. Jesus goes on in in another passage, he said, In this world you will have trouble, a similar word to what David uses here in Psalm 119. In this world you will have oppression, you will have suffering, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Some of you need to hear this today because 2017 has brought into your life, at least spiritually or emotionally, some disillusionment. Like, where are you, God, in the midst of this? He's right there with you, but he never promised that he's gonna take you out of that. He promised that he'll be with you through it. This light that illuminates your path it doesn't change that there's some manure in the path. It doesn't change that there's a hole that you could fall into. It doesn't change that there's a significant barrier or hurdle or danger. It doesn't change that there are animals, that there are things prowling to take your life. But it changes that you can see it. It gives you protection. It gives you hope. It illuminates. It lights up. It gives you some direction. But that path is still hard, Church. It's still hard, but now it's just illuminated. When you walk on that path with God's word, it's illuminated. I had a conversation with a woman from here at Impact after a service um, a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, and and she's been going through some significant hardship in her life. Um, Maritally, uh, familially, just a, a ton of hardship. And she's she started attending Impact just fairly recently. And she she said this to me through tears, she's talking about her situation, and she's just in agony over the pain and the suffering that she's going through. And she said this, I just don't understand, John. I'm following God more now than ever. But things seem to be getting worse. What gives? Are you kidding me? I thought, like, I start doing this. I've, I've started attending church, and I thought it was an equation. <laughs> you know, like, I do that. I make this vow with God. If you do this for me, I'll do this for you, and things will be hunky-dory. What happened to that? And here she was in this conversation after church, like, weeping over, God, I, I, I've been following you, and things are getting worse. What is happening? God doesn't promise to pull you from the situation. Maybe he will. Maybe he'll heal that illness. Maybe he'll mend that relationship. Maybe he will bring healing supernaturally. Sometimes that doesn't happen. What do you do when that happens? For David, he talked to God about it. He wrestled with God about it. He said, I've I've suffered and I've been snared. How, How have you suffered? How have you suffered? Have you suffered by being afflicted? Have you suffered by being oppressed? Have you suffered by being depressed? Have you suffered by being hurt or broken or burdened? These are all things that some, some of these things can come from our own volition, from our own choices, and we've made our own bed that we sleep in. Some of them happen that are totally out of our control. Loss of loved ones, death, illness, and it wasn't even someone else's fault. And so you've suffered from something that you just are are like, I didn't have any fault in this and no one else did. But some of you are suffering because of what someone else has done to you. And David knew this. He said, I've got wicked people that are trying to snare my life. Are you snared? Have you been set up? Have you been made fun of? You've been bullied. The hot topic in the schools right now, I can't tell you how many students have been bullied, but you know what is not a hot topic? How many adults have been bullied? How many of you have wounds? How many of you have been snared and are suffering because of wounds from from your past or even recent? Have you been abused emotionally, physically, sexually, sexually? relationally, spiritually? Have you been neglected? Have you been forgotten? Have you been mocked? I'm so grateful for counselors in our church. And one of them, that he, just, he just finished our, his, his dissertation for his doctorate of ministries, Dave Beach. And here I've got up on the screen a picture of his dissertation. It's 230 pages in length And you know what he wrote about? He wrote about following Jesus, the man of sorrows. See, Dave became, he had a a career shift in his life when his wife passed away from illness. It wrecked his faith. It it was so difficult for him to to deal with. Why would God allow this to happen? And he had people around him saying, just believe more. Just believe it'll get better. It'll get better. Have, have the faith and, and she's gonna get better. And she didn't get better, she died. And so he wrestled with how could God do this? Does God even care about my suffering? And what he discovered is he, as he opened up scripture was the amount of times that God talks about suffering and even the life that Jesus lived that he was called this man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. Some of you need to get to know that Jesus. Jesus. And it would change your life because you've experienced suffering and snaring and abuse that is unspeakable. And you've wondered where God is in the middle of it. And He actually walked through suffering for you. He can relate to your suffering, He's with you in that and through that. Dave studied books like God and Human Suffering the rhetoric of suffering, the theology of suffering and death. Anyone wanna borrow that from Dave and read that this week? It's a light read. All because of this desire, and Julia is similar, this desire to help people in the midst of suffering, not to pull wool over your eyes and pretend like it's not there, but to enter into it with people. The precepts of God don't take away the pain, but they preserve you through it. Some of you need to write that down for this week or this year or whatever. The precepts of God don't take away the pain, but they preserve you through it. They preserve you through it. There's a movie that Amy and I went and watched here recently. It's called Wonder. And there's a, a clip from the movie where the teacher is talking about precepts. I want you to check this out. No? Precepts are rules for really important things. Like mottos. Like mottos, or like famous quotes, or like um, lines from a fortune cookie, right? Precepts can help motivate us. They can help guide us when we have to make decisions about really important things. Okay, so who wants to read this month's precept? <laughs> what about you? What's your name? Summer. Summer. I give it a when given the choice between being right or being kind, choose kind. Precepts, the things that guide you, kind of rules to live by, your words to live by. When given the choice to be right or kind, choose kind. What are your precepts? What are your values? Maybe you've written them down. Maybe you've never thought about them. Each one of you has precepts. And they usually determine how you act. So if you want to know what your precepts are, take a look at how you treat people, how you act, and you can then go move backward to find out what your values are, what your rules, what your laws are for your own life. You can call them statutes or precepts or words to live by. What are yours? Here are some of God's that I found as I looked down through Scripture Love the Lord your God. With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength from Matthew, Jesus said this and he was quoting other scripture in the the Old Testament. Love others like you love yourself. Jesus also said this. Be thankful in all circumstances. Paul said this to the church in Thessalonica. You're blessed when you experience hardship or persecution because of Christ. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. Forgive people. Jesus also said that in the Sermon on the Mount. What if you lived by that precept, forgive? When choosing between holding on to the grudge or forgiving, choose to forgive every time. What about that for a precept? Take in the stranger, show hospitality. Care for the orphan and the widow. Consider it joy when you face trials of many kinds because trials develop your faith. Both of those are found in the book of James. Put on love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The verse goes on in Galatians 5.22 and says, against such things there is no law. That is law. Put those things on. Precepts. What are your precepts? The last couple of things that I want to share before the band comes up is that David then shifts into a response of praise. In verses 108 and 111, right after talking about suffering, right after talk, talking about the goodness of the law, he talks about joy in his heart. Oh God, that this would become joy-filled for us, that this would become the, the praise and the desire of our hearts. Not that it would be easy or that it would always make us feel good and feel happy, but that it would be a deep, abiding joy. And then he ends with this in verse 112. And how appropriate for New Year's Eve. He says, my heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end, a different resolve. This is the day or the couple of days, the time of the year for New Year's resolutions. I want to lose this weight. I want to eat these things and eat healthier. I want to work out. I want to get rid of this debt. I want to accomplish this goal. I want to set out to do this and do it. I wonder what it would look like for you in 2018 for your resolution, your resolve, your I have set my heart on this thing to be God's word. What would your life look like if that was your resolution? What life and hope and joy and peace could be brought into your life if you made this a priority, if you made this your precept, if you made this your resolution. In 2017, I, did, I uh, wrote out some words to live by, some of my precepts, and I'd like to share several of them with you. And I had them on my desk through this year and on my computer. And here they are, Jesus is first and foremost in my life. He guides and directs and loves me. I love my wife and will lay my life down to serve her. I will nurture, love, and train up my children to follow and love God. They will love God and serve him with their whole hearts. I love my family like Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her. I'm intentional to leave my children with a legacy. When tempted, God will always provide a way out and I will take it. Do I always take it? No. Am I gonna keep communicating to myself that I should take it? Yes. Am I gonna keep upholding and desiring that law? Yes. I'm intentional. I can be patient and kind because the Holy Spirit helps me. Do I believe that I'm always patient or kind? No. But God tells me that I can be and that I am that. He calls me his child, By God's grace, God's grace is more powerful than my sin. I will not be a slave to fear. I'm fearless. I'm not defined by failures or successes. And I wonder what it would be like for you to go home today and write out some of your 2018 words to live by, some of your precepts for your life. A different resolve. In a couple weeks, we're gonna read through, we're gonna start a series called Different and the tagline is a new normal. Could this be a new normal for you? Getting into God's word, reading scripture together with a life group or a community of people. Some of you made decisions for Christ recently in our series Dark Horse. I think 30 to 40 people made decisions for Christ. Maybe some of you were like, what does it mean? I don't I mean I raised my hand to follow Jesus, but I don't I don't know where he's going. I don't even know what it means. You know how you develop what it means to follow Jesus? Getting into this. Michelle Tyson and our New Connections team afterward would love to give you a Bible because we believe in this precept. We believe in these statutes. We believe in this guidebook. So I encourage you after the service, get one of these, get ready to read through the New Testament together. Commit to God's word. Why don't you stand as we pray together? So Jesus, we thank you that you are the word, the word that became flesh and made your dwelling among us, God, that you are the perfect embodiment of grace and truth, God. Thank you that there's grace even in the law, that you set out a right standard for us to live by. And God, we want to to consume that. We want to consume your law. We want to consume your word. We want to live like that. And we thank you for your grace in it. We thank you that when we fall short of your glory, when we fall short of your standard, that you have given us grace through Jesus. God, I pray that today that our church would commit to your word in 2018. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming today. You're dismissed.